Sebastian was a curious seven-year-old boy, a bundle of energy who loved to explore and play outside. He had one younger sister that followed him everywhere he went. Some days they would journey up and down the banks of a nearby creek for hours hunting for crawdad and catfish. Another day they'd go up on top of the hill to look over the farm waiting for the sunset. They would love to watch their hardworking dad plowing his field while driving his new 1935 John Deere Model B tractor. His pride and joy. One day, while they were passing a ball in their front yard, four giant machines were chewing up the old dirt road, constructing a new asphalt-paved highway in front of their house. At dinner, their mom and dad said the new road was going to be called Route 66. It started in St. Louis, Missouri, and it reached all the way to their home in New Mexico. For two weeks, Sebastian and his sister sat watching in fascination as a fresh, hot layer of blacktop was laid, stretching down the road like a black ribbon as far as the eye could see. His parents would caution the two children to stay far away from the workers and the road especially while the machines were around. Finally, the project was finished with clean white lines painted on either side of the road and a yellow dash stripe down the middle. Sebastian ran in the house to get his basketball out to dribble on a new pavement. He wanted to try it out. He called for his sister to come join him, but she said, Dad told us it's too dangerous. I'm not going. Dangerous, said Sebastian. What is so dangerous? It looks fun. For the first week, Sebastian would go out and dribble, sometimes bringing white chalk to draw pictures on the black asphalt. He'd also bring a bag of marbles to roll farther than he ever could on a hardwood kitchen floor in his house. After a few days, his sister finally relented and joined him. It was so much more fun than playing on their dirt and gravel driveway. But the funnest was having races, imagining they were running dashes at the Olympics. Sebastian, get off the road! His mom spotted the two children as she was hanging up some laundry to dry on the clothesline. What did your father say? It is dangerous out there. And if he catches you, he will tan your hide. But mom, said Sebastian, nothing ever comes down this road. It is safe. And watch how fast we can run. Young man, I said, get off the road now. The next day after breakfast, Sebastian was playing in the loft of the barn and found an old pair of roller skates. Turning to his sister while holding up the silver pair, he said, I will bet I can really get going fast on a new road with these. She warned him not to. But Sebastian didn't listen. He couldn't wait to see how fast he could go. When he stepped on the new pavement with the skates, at first it was hard to maintain his balance, but soon he was able to get going at a pretty good clip. He noticed, too, that the middle of the road was especially smooth, and he learned to glide without any effort at all. While Sebastian was a good half mile down the road, his father was bringing in the tractor from the field. After he shut off the motor, he saw his daughter playing in the front yard alone. Hey, honey, where's Sebastian? She said nothing, not wanting to get her brother in trouble. Just then, the father heard a loud horn of a giant trailer truck come barreling down the road. 
Oh, oh. Why does that truck keep honking its horn? Wondered the father. Daddy, Daddy, Sebastian is roller skating on the road, cried the sister. Sure enough, the dad saw off in the distance his son skating with his back to the oncoming truck. The dad ran towards his son and yelled, Sebastian, get off the road! Get off the road! Sebastian was too far away to hear, and his dad, and he never turned because he was engrossed in his skating. The father tried one last time to yell to his son, but the sound of the truck and the blasting of the horn was too loud for the father to be heard. The father fell to his knees, watching the truck swerve to the oncoming lane to try to avoid his son, breathless. He prayed for his boy as the truck barreled past Sebastian at full speed. In one brief moment, he thought he heard the sound of a thump, wondering if his son was still alive. As the truck screamed down the thin black ribbon of highway, there was his son sprawled out in the middle of the road. The father ran, desperate and scared to his son. Hearing moans, he finally arrived to see a tearful Sebastian with a broken ankle, bleeding elbow and knee, and red puffy cheeks with a stream of flowing hot tears. Dad, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I thought it was safe. I was having fun, but I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. The father's anger quickly subsided as he picked up his small trembling boy and brought him back into the house. Looking to his wife, the father gave her a quick wink. I think he learned his lesson. He will never go out and play on the road ever again. The title of our message is Get Off the Road. We all need to learn this lesson of staying off the road, spiritually speaking. And if we don't, the results could be catastrophic. Today we are going to do a study on the holiness of God, church discipline, purity, and a bunch of other things. And I also am placing a disclaimer. Sarah, I'm placing a disclaimer. This has a parental advisory on it. The subject matter is rather raw, but don't worry, I will proceed with care. So if you could stand, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 through 8, and the title is Get off the road. It's about church discipline. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven. The leaven of malice and evil. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And everybody said, Amen. Have a seat. Last week, Jared had a great sermon. If you weren't here, I really encourage you to listen to it. It concerns the body of Christ, the church. And the message was simple. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. We, the church, have been bought by the blood of Christ so we can be pure and holy. Holy means set apart, set aside for His purpose. And pure. He wants us to be a wife who is worthy of wearing a white dress on their wedding. Paul talks about why we need to be pure in Romans 6, 1-2. This may be one of the most important verses of why we should stop sinning. Listen close. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? Shall we continue to play in the road so that grace may increase? God forbid! It's an exclamation point. No, no, no! We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Jesus bought us, His bride, to bring us out of sin. This love that He gave to us on the cross, we don't deserve it. This love is free. But this love that He gave us was to set us free from sin. So in other words, we need to stop taking His grace for granted by continuing in sin. But did you know, and this is said in, in really in, in sad tones, there are many people in the church who actually enjoy sinning. Completely ignoring both why Jesus died and what it means to be pure, and that's what's going on in this passage we just read in the Corinthian church. So Paul addresses it, because it's serious. And I would say this, this section deals with probably one of the toughest, if not the toughest question the church has to answer. And it's this. What do you do? What do you do when a person in the church, not an unbeliever, but a believer, a person in the church continues to, first of all, blatantly sin? By blatantly, I mean they keep running in the road when it's clear that they should not. Just like Sebastian in the story, he keeps running out in the road when both his father, his mother, even his sister warn him. Did you know there are some Christians who keep sinning, ignoring the clear words of the Heavenly Father, ignoring the words of the Mother Church, and even the advice of fellow brothers and sisters. So when this happens, what does the church do? 
We're going to talk about that. Second thing, what does the church do when a person flaunts and even defends an action God hates? What do you do when the sin a person's participating in is promoted and celebrated? How should the church handle it? That's our discussion. That's what's happening here in the Corinthian church. It's of a, a sin that is so blatant, and they're celebrating it. This is a problem in the American church because we live in a culture that doesn't understand the holy God, and it's infiltrating into our church, causing us to look past sins that once broke us. So what he does is he gives us a case study. And so we're going to work through a case study, and I'm titling the case study, A Man and His Father's Wife. Let me read it again, verse 1 and 2. It's real clear. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Ought you not to rather mourn? That's, that's the situation. It's sad, and there's three components that causes Paul to address it. What I mean by that, to take it seriously or metaphorically, to say, get off the road. And these, these three issues are, number one, the issue at hand was a, was a Greek word called porneia or sexual immorality. The Greek word means that this is, a, this is an action that is outside of the marriage covenant, extramarital sin, and an aberration to that covenant, including adultery, bestiality, homosexuality. And these actions are called abomination. It disgusts God, makes him sick. The Pornea Codes are found in Leviticus 18 to 20, and they detail the type of sins that God calls detestable, defiling. They are still to be applied to our moral, our moral self. These sins are the semi-truck trailer barreling down the road, sins that will forever ruin your life if you ignore them. The specific sin in this situation was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. It's known as incest. And it's so abhorrent, according to verse 1, not even pagans tolerate this. This is uh, condemned in the book of Leviticus 18.8, which says, you shall not sleep with your father's wife. A number of biblical scholars put it like this. This man was having an ongoing sexual relationship with his father's wife, his stepmom, and he didn't think it was any big deal. The second thing about this issue is that we can say it's public. Everyone knew what was going on. Look at verse 1. Paul writes, it's actually reported, meaning he heard it, and he's in another, he's in another country writing. The gossip chains were chattering. Tick a little, talk a little, tick a little, talk a little, tick, 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 tick. Everybody's talking about it. The people are pointing fingers. The ladies are having coffee and whispering. And I probably think the pure in heart are broken about it. How can this go on? And of course, the news on the street, those outside of the church were saying, 
this Christian group is supposed to be righteous? Come on, man. Jerry Falwell Jr.? Come on, man. And finally, the sin was not being addressed in any serious way. And what was worse, it was actually being celebrated. They were taking pride in it. The man was proud that he was doing it and getting away with it. And the church was proud that they were tolerating it. Both the deed itself was wrong and the response. Verse 2 says, Ought you not rather mourn? Verse 6 says, Your boasting is not good. This is not a good thing. Did you know there are some churches that are actually proud of themselves because they are accepting of sins and celebrating people who are proud of their deviance? Even one writer wonders as he's studying this, is this pride here in the Corinthian church a way that they believe they are exercising their newfound freedom in Christ? And they are proud that anything now is allowed to go on because we live under grace, so we're free, right? You don't think the church in our day would ever reach the point where inclusion, acceptance, tolerance, and saying God loves you no matter how you are living will become the norm where just let it go. No, God wouldn't do that, would he? Or the church wouldn't become like that, would they? So, in this case study, because three things were occurring, porneia, public notoriety of the sin, and pride, Paul needed to address it. He needed to reprimand them. We call this church discipline. That's what that is. That is why in verse 3 and 4 he says, For although absent in body, I'm present spirit, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, that means when the church together is under the authority of Christ and my spirit is present, meaning I'm with you in spirit. The power of the Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to Satan. Like, ow, wow. In other words, Paul cannot let this go because he and the church and the way he leads the church is accountable to the Lord. They're under his authority. He'd probably say it like this, a member of Christ's body, a brother who lives among you, is sinning publicly and you're all okay with it? Sorry, that won't fly by God. So as he says in verse 2, shouldn't you be mourning? In verse 11, um, don't associate with him. So you could say it like this, from this case study, from what the Bible says, what the Bible clearly says, because we are people of the book, we let the book dictate our behavior. We don't, we don't have behavior then try to justify it, ignoring what the Bible says. So from this clear teaching in 1 Corinthians 5, it is clear that church discipline is both biblical and necessary. And I'm going to give four reasons why. The first reason is this. There will be times when sin reaches such serious levels involving pornea, public testimonies being ruined, and pride when church discipline is the holy and right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. 
In verse 3, Paul says in the middle of it, I'm pronouncing judgment. Judgment in this case means it needs to be condemned. Like Sebastian, there needs to be lines that you say, do not, do not cross. Don't go in the road. Why? Some people say, why, why can't we just let people live and let live? Isn't a person free in Christ? No, because we're a body. We're His bride. And sin affects all of us. Gordon Fee, one commentator, writes, there will always be some who see this kind of sentiment by Paul here in 1 Corinthians and the church, like because I'm talking about church discipline, they'll see this attitude as harsh and unloving. But such criticism comes from those who do not appreciate the biblical view of God's holiness. And the deep revulsion to sin that holiness entails. It says actually in Habakkuk 1.13, God cannot look upon iniquity. When Isaiah sees the exalted Lord in Isaiah 6, he sees him high and exalted on the throne. He, he falls to his knees and he says, holy, holy, holy. He bows in deep personal and national repentance and in such moments, the removal of sin is the natural consequence. That's what Gordon Fee says. God is holy. And we are to be his holy bride. So, judgment, saying something is wrong and will not be allowed nor tolerated, is the right thing to do. Sebastian's father was right when he said, get off the road. But dad, it's fun. I'm having fun. I don't care. It's not right. And, and, it will destroy you if you ignore it. The second reason why we need church discipline is if church discipline does not occur, sin will spread. And it may become an accepted practice. Look at verses 6 to 8. Your boasting's not good. Do you know not, not know that a little yeast, little leaven, leavens the whole lump? And leaven in biblical parlance is evil. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you already are, unloving. Paul is using the metaphor here in verses 6 through 8 of the Passover meal. In the Old Testament, the Passover meal, they would make bread without yeast, unleavened bread. Why? Because yeast gets into the whole lump and puffs it up like pride. I was doing some reading and some writers said yeast isn't used like it is today. Today we buy yeast in little packets and then put it in the dough. But back then, the way that yeast was used is they would take dough that was made previously that has been out and it has started to ferment. They'd take a piece and put it into the new lump, new dough, and mix it through. And then that yeast would spread throughout the dough and the whole dough would rise. It's like a friendship cake. Anybody ever a friendship cake? Do you know what a friendship cake is? Raise your hand if you have. My sister said, Chris, I, I got this cool thing. It's called a friendship cake. You make this cake batter, and then you take a scoop of it, and you give it to the next person. So I'm like, Tam, where did this dough come from? Oh, I don't know. It might have been traveling for 
maybe two years. Two years where it started. And this is Cleveland, mind you. There's some scary places in Cleveland. I'm not eating that cake. Well, that's kind of what's going on. They would take some old dough, put it in a new dough, and the old fermented cake would spread to the new. It'd sometimes spoil and ruin it for good. So in the Passover, God said, you know what? I want fresh dough. So Paul said the church was making something new. Not with the cultural rot included, especially the sexual rot that was rampant during the Corinthian days. We don't have that problem, I don't think, in our days, that sexuality is kind of running rampant. And then it becomes the norm if you let it go. Do you think that ever occurs when sexual practices that once were frowned upon become the norm? Like, for instance... Living together used to be wrong, now it's accepted and expected. Homosexuality was seen as a behavior outside of God's shalom or his good order, the way he designed life. Now we are told and even scolded, as long as it's mutual monogamous, it's a beautiful thing. I wonder, will having three partners in a marriage become the new norm? third reason why discipline is important is this. It's a tool given to the church to help us become who we already are. Look at verse 7 again. Verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. We have been saved in Christ, so positionally we are his pure children. Discipline is a tool that helps us stay pure. Let us become a new lump, he writes, as you already are. In Christ, we are to be who we are. We don't achieve it. We haven't achieved it. We've been given it by grace. Church discipline helps us achieve that as a body. As Romans 6.1 says, should we continue in sin so grace may abound? God forbid, precisely because we've been set free from that sin. We're new. So discipline is a tool to help us become what we're meant to be. In this case, verse 5, it was so severe, Paul said, deliver the man over to Satan. That's a strange term. There's a lot written on it, but I'll surmise it to say, Paul said, cast the person out from the protective life of the church. The church prays for people, the church gives instruction for the people, and the church has godly fellowship. Cast them out so they will be left alone. And one, Satan will be able to chastise them using painful things. And hopefully this person will feel alone and they'll long to come back to Christ's body. What's hard about it in our day and age is there's so many churches around that do not practice church discipline. People will go to another church and say, see, at least they accept me. So it's hard to practice it. Fourth reason, fourth reason is discipline is for the family of God, his children. Discipline, listen close, is not for the unbeliever. Our job isn't to condemn the world and to try to find what's wrong with everybody around us. It's for those who name the name of Christ. Look at verses 9 and 10. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate 
with sexually immoral people. Then he says in verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or of the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to get out of the world. God placed us precisely in the world so the world could watch how the church lives so they would say, I want to be like that. We are to be a spectacle of purity to the world. So Paul is addressing the bride, those in-house. So, I mean, I could talk about this for a long time, but I just want to get to then what are the practical realities. In our church, we have what's called a covenant constitution and confession. We have some out there. Jesse has put some out on the foyer if you'd like to get some. But this is an in-house document, and it details how we are to practically live this out. So with this in mind, what I've said, how do we go along practicing biblical church discipline at Tent City Baptist? Because honestly, people oftentimes come up to me and they're like, man, church discipline at this church is haphazard. There's no consistent standard. Some people say it seems like sometimes it's unfair. We pick and choose people who we discipline. Some people say it doesn't seem like it even exists at the church. So how do we practice church discipline in our body the right way, which is the godly way? I want to bring your attention to the Article 3 of discipline. First of all, it defines the purpose, and it says the purpose of discipline is threefold. Number one, to restore the erring brother or sister back to the church to full obedience. It's not to get rid of people, it's to bring people back. It's a good thing. It sets them free. It's so Sebastian won't die on the road. Second reason for church discipline is a safeguard to testimony of Christ. We worship Jesus here. We don't want to embarrass him. Third purpose is really it's not used for resolving church conflict. Some people come in and say, this person hurt me. Go get him and use the church. That's not the point. We're not here to hurt anybody. The second Thing this constitution gives is the causes. What will cause us to act? The first thing is a person who will be pushing a doctrinal error that's heretical. What's very interesting is both our elders and deacons address a lot of bad doctrine. And oftentimes it will stop there because they know they can't get past us. But doctrine is, if it's heretical, it can be dangerous. Second purpose of church discipline is somebody basically showing divisive behavior, slandering, gossiping maliciously behind people's back. That's what it says there. And then the third thing is really, this is what 1 Corinthians 5 is, unrepentant public sin, porneia, that threatens the testimony of Christ. It needs to be dealt with. Then the Constitution talks about the process. And I want you to listen real close to what we have written. The responsibility to warn and admonish each other is the responsibility of every member. Confrontation of sin and church discipline should always be done in a spirit of humility. That's Galatians 6.1. Broken, humble, and love. And should follow the pattern of Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is very clear. If somebody sins against you, go to them. If they don't listen, bring a godly person with you. Two witnesses. If they don't listen, it goes to the church. In our case, it goes to the elders, and we, we investigate. If at any stage the disobedient member is repentant, that's the goal, and turns from their sin, no further actions need to be taken. We are not, we are not the sheriff who's looking for criminals. 
couple more things about the process. Public communication is for the purpose of limiting gossip. Sometimes we will communicate from the pulpit on family night that somebody's being disciplined. The reason why is because if you don't, sometimes gossip will go like wildfire. And it needs to be stemmed and just enough information so it will be stopped. Unrepentance leads to removal and loss of fellowship. You can't break bread with us because it's a testimony that we're part of Christ's body. And then members should treat the sinning member with respect and civility. Love them. And then the final thing our Constitution says, what if they turn? Listen to this. And this is the most important thing. It's incredible when a repentant party's been restored. It is the responsibility of every member to forgive them. Not to think you're better. We've all been forgiven. Show the same mercy that's been shown to you to them. Conclusion. We just had a meeting with the elders to discuss this topic, and all of the elders wanted Kent City Baptist to be aware of two things. Number one, we take purity of the bride very seriously. We do. Number two, we also know that information is dangerous. We are not to be a gossip chain. And so what, sometimes repentance will take a process, a while. There is no cookie-cutter situation. Sin, if you didn't know, makes everything complicated. It's like a, a ball of string that is knotted, and it takes a long time to get out the knot. So, we often will err on the side of patience and mercy over snap judgment and disfellowship. And the reason's simple. Once the paste is out of the tube, as Dan Spolster likes to say, it's next to impossible to get it in. Once the information is, is shared, it's hard to get it back in. You can, you can destroy families with information we know. So we ask you to trust our judgment, and if ever you have any questions, talk to us, the elders, deacons, the pastors. Come talk to us, and don't talk to the gossip chains. When Sebastian ran in the road, he almost died. He didn't listen, so he almost died. Sometimes God allows for situations to play out to such a degree that a person will get hurt so bad they'll never want to do it again. We don't want that to happen. That's why we have church discipline. But sometimes God allows the road. He lets someone play in it because he knows that when a person gets hurt, they will never, ever, ever want to do it again. So we warn you. Stay off the road. 